and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Today I am joined once again by the deeply knowledgeable, much-loved master of adventures in history land, Josh Proven. Because Josh has a book out that I think folk are going to be very interested in. It's called Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. That was Bullock's, I emphasise that pronunciation heavily, and covers the campaigns that contain the Battle of Versailles and the Siege of Gwilga, the contests which Sharp fans and Napoleonic era enthusiasts will know all too well as key engagements involving Sir Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington. Josh, it's always great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to seeing how people respond to the book. It's been a while and coming, so exciting well, times. It's actually your second book, isn't it? Because you did Wild East, which is about the situation out in the Far East, uh, in the sort of mid-Victorian period. Folks, shameless plug for this book, Wild East. It's in the Napoleonicist bookshop. There's a link down below if you're watching this on YouTube, or it's in the description if you're listening to it. Click the link. You'll find it in the featured on the podcast list. Go and buy the book. You know Josh by now. He's a lovely individual, very knowledgeable. He's smiling sweetly at you to try and persuade you to buy this thing. Um, honestly, it's well worth it. And then in the process, if you use that link, not only will he actually get some royalties, and believe me, we do not go into this business of history to make money, but also the Napoleonicist will get a cut as well. Not his cut, but it will um, get a cut nonetheless. So you'll be supporting two individuals who will be much obliged to you. So we've sold Wild East. Hopefully by the time this goes out, the, the book will either be days away from publication or, or it will be published. So again, go have a look in the bookshop uh, off the back of this interview and buy it um, because it's got all the makings of a fantastic book. I've seen the, the pre-proof version and it's stellar. The, the horrendous pre-corrected <laughs> version. I mean, I wasn't going to sort of point out all of the spelling mistakes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, folks. With okay. a crayon, but I wrote with a crayon. How do you spell? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I had hopes that you might be able to spell war by your age, but you know. <laughs> what, there's not an H in it somewhere? No, no. But anyway, let's get down to some history. So set the scene for us. What's the political scene in India at this point of the, the Maratha and the Jat campaigns? Because this is a complex world. You've got warring Indian kingdoms, you've got embryonic European empires trying to insert themselves into the subcontinent, you've got the, well I, I say the growing East India Company, but actually in many respects East India Company is quite well fledged by this point. So talk us, in fact we're only 50 years away from its collapse post-India mutiny, so mm. you know the EIC as I tend to call it is, is well established, so you've got a lot going on here. Give us a, a flavour of this sort of maelstrom of political manoeuvring. I have a go. Um, and I have to say that when I was researching the book, it is really fascinating to see how the war comes about. It's almost more fascinating than the actual war itself to see how the war comes about. And I was, I'm sad that I couldn't in, in, <laughs> sort of cover this really, really complicated uh, topic. Uh, in a book about the war, because otherwise I would never have written about the war. But as of the beginning of the second Maratha war, this, this is the general picture. So 
uh, a century or more of turmoil and power shifts have, have seen the complete disintegration of the Mughal Empire, which by 1800 uh, was now just a tool for anyone to use to bolster their legitimacy as a leader in India. That role was currently fulfilled by the Maratha Confederacy, which is a group of powerful Hindu states that had banded together in the 17th century uh, and had grown to dominate most of Northern India. Uh, the other power in India in 1800 is the British East India Company, EIC, Honorable Company, Company Badahur, whatever, which had emerged from a troubled period in the late 18th century having defeated the Muslim ruler of Mysore and made a vital alliance with the old Mughal state of Hyderabad, without whom uh, they could not have established themselves as they did. The British were progressing in what was known as the forward policy uh, at this time. This was an aggressive expansion of British uh, political control over the independent rulers of the country, uh, the in quotes country powers as they called them. It was masterminded by the British Governor General at Fort William in Bengal, Lord Richard Wellesley, who had a scheme to remove the other European rulers of the country, um, or the other European contenders, I'm sorry, uh, in the country, basically the French. He was deeply um, phobic about the French in India. And he felt that the way to um, secure British interests and get rid of the French was essentially just for the British to run everything, simple. And, um, but of course there was another, he did have an, a slightly, another, um, he did have another motive as well, which is based on uh, most British administrators obsession with trying to establish some kind of order and stability in the world. It can be argued that even the Napoleonic Wars themselves were the British trying to stabilize Europe after the French Revolution. Well, this would be Richard Wellesley trying to stabilize India uh, after about 30 years of continuous upheaval to do with various rather complicated politics within the country. So he, he therefore employs what he called the subsidiary system. So as I said, since the 1770s in the northern and central zones of India, um, and even down into the south, uh, there has been just an endless period of conflict and deprivation, uh, building to a height in the 80s and 90s, when tracts of land became so depopulated that, um, you know, through various conflicts and famines, that wild animals began to re-inhabit areas that had once been populated by humans. Um, the cycle of violence did often hinge around the EIC, but also the Marathas, Mysore, and the Nizam of Hyderabad separately. And the crisis of the 1780s had seen the EIC also drawn uh, further uh, or further and further under the control of Westminster. Uh, and Wellesley thought that if the company could take control of the subcontinent, obviously they could make all these troubles go away. Now, that's a nice idea, you know, flourishing states and stuff, but uh, under, under a peaceful and benign overlord. 
Um, but at the same time, it's 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 just basically, you know, the imperial aspiration syndrome at the same time, because that is going to require you to take control of a lot of places that people don't want you to take control of. And so hence, but whatever, you know, if that was his plan and he was the governor general and everybody else who could have stopped him was thousands of miles away, months to, to, to get a letter back to London. And so he, he embarked on this subsidiary plan. And a subsidiary, a subsidiary alliance is basically that you go to an independent ruler and you make a treaty with him and he hands over the defense of his country to you and uh, his foreign policy as well. So basically anything, so basically you could, he can't, he can't go to war anymore and he can't defend himself. You do it for him. You essentially, you essentially take, you essentially his, he becomes your ward basically. As of 1800, this, this um, system was working. It was achieved goal of making British power paramount. And by the time um, the last major power theoretically capable of opposing the British in the, in the South had fallen, which is obviously Mysore in 1799, um, there was no one left to actually really properly oppose the British because the French went out when Hyderabad uh, was, uh, became an ally of the British and they had only a small enclave uh, now in India and they really didn't count anymore. And I mean, of course, the revolution, of course, ended pretty much any organized attempts to try and colonize India from the French perspective as well. But um, the only nation left in India after the fall of Mysore in 99 was the Marathas. And unfortunately for the Marathas, the, the state was a fractured thing uh, with the last of the great statesmen like Mahataji uh, Shind and Nana Fadnavis uh, passing away and leaving all but one of the major confederates under the rule of young, ambitious, and in some cases, mostly inept men. Ostensibly, the Confederacy was led by uh, uh, the Peshwa in Poon, um, a position that had once been the prime minister of their overlord, um, the Chhatrapati, um, who was a defunct, now mostly ceremonial guy who lived in a, in a, in a fortress, uh, I believe it's Satara. And he doesn't play really much of a role in politics anymore. It's all the Peshwa. And unfortunately, the Peshwa is a young man by the name of Vajirao II, the son of a hated former Peshwa, who is now in exile, having sparked the first Maratha war with the British under, <laughs> under frightening, frighteningly similar circumstances. Um, he tried to exert his dominance over the other Maratha Maharajas, especially the Maharaja of Gwalior, Dalatra uh, Shind, um, who had most, he had the most powerful army in the Confederacy and he was Banshi Rao's self-proclaimed protector uh, because, well, he had the best, best army when everybody, when the power vacuums began to, to pull. And he went over to Poon and he established himself there. And he said, uh, I'll just take over running things now. You just do whatever the heck you want and I'll take care of things. And well, that didn't really work out very well because 
the stabilized state became all the more so when when Dalatrao tried to do this because he also had this this ridiculous completely Machiavellian father-in-law who got him entangled in a war with his father's wives uh, which caused immense amount of um, immense amount of trouble and uh, an outright war within the Gwalior um, state and um, then he tried to destroy the the Maharajas of Indore the one of the other main Maharaja uh, uh, leaders were the Maharajas of Indore, uh, the Holkar family, and he he basically tried to purge them, um, and he did this by taking advantage of a succession crisis where they came, the Holkars came to Poon to try and get mediation, and he basically massacred a bunch of them. And um, unfortunately for him, he didn't kill the guy he needed to kill, whose name was Yashwantrao Holkar. And we'll get to him later, but basically another terrible, terrible civil war breaks out uh, as Holkar goes on this amazing kind of epic journey, gets knocked down, comes back up, gets knocked down again, and, and it somehow manages to get an army together, get to the gates of Poon itself, attack, the Peshwas and um, Shin's army and beats it and puts Baji Rao's brother on the, th on the throne or the Masnud as it's called uh, in, in Indian circles which is the, the low cushioned throne that most Maharajas sit on and this now gets even worse because what does Baji Rao do? He doesn't run to safety with his ally Shind, who he doesn't trust. He goes like a rabbit out of Maratha territory to the British, like his dad did. And he goes to the British and he says, I've been kicked out of my country. You've always wanted to have a resident in my country. You've always wanted this dumb subsidiary treaty with me. If you put me back in Poon, I'll sign one of those with you. And Richard Wellesley's like, yes, excellent, brilliant idea. And so he um, he and so just they sign a they sign a treaty at a place called Bassein in uh, I believe it's December of 1802. And basically a massive mobilization of, of British and company troops takes place across the borders of, of British territories. And the Nizam also mobilizes his troops uh, in Hyderabad. Uh, and from this massive army that gets mobilized to attack the Marathas, we turn to, or the, I believe it's the general, the commander-in-chief of Bombay assigns a, a, a forward detachment under the command of a an obscure but talented major general by the name of Arthur Wellesley, who happens to also be quite well connected. Who? Never um, heard of him before. He's, he's only a name in India. Nobody cares about him outside of India. It doesn't matter. <laughs> India officers, you know, nobody cares about India officers. <laughs> and it was a place where um, 
as folks who've read Rory Muir's book, uh, Gentlemen of Uncertain Fortune will know, it's a place where actually you, you took a massive gamble because you could go out to India and die out there um, mm -hmm. and not be able to afford your own passage back. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, okay, so he's an army officer, so potentially he can, and he's rich and well-connected, so he can afford his passage back. But nonetheless, in an era before vaccination, etc., um, the the risk of disease was was substantial. Josh, you've you, that was just talking. Yeah, yeah. Thank you um, for that. And what I like about that is that I think you are very fair in highlighting the fact that actually the British were pretty scumbaggy during this period. Um, there's no sugarcoating it. There's no apologising for it. People who are listening might go, oh, but it was the era of empires and therefore it's okay. No, that doesn't excuse it. No, not at all. I mean, even at the time, people thought this was dodgy. I mean, you have the trial of Warren Hastings going on almost just uh, if it's not if it's not if it's just over it has been going on for for ridiculous lot ridiculous lengths of time you've got people basically asking why on earth is the is the is there troops in, is there more troops in india than we have under arms in britain why what is going on in india <laughs> uh it's a huge actual conversation going on at the moment about what is going on in India and why it is happening. And what's really odd about this, because folks might not be aware of that about it, is that you've got British regular army out there, but you've also got the East India Company army, which is part of the reason why the numbers are so large, because the army, the EIC army, is, uh, is, it is governed in terms of its size, but it's governed separately to the British regular force. And the idea is that the two will supplement one another. So let's sort of drill down into this a little bit. Talk us through, let's talk about the European side, first of all. Well, I, I say European side, but actually that's probably a, a disingenuous term to use when we're talking about the EIC army, because actually what do the EIC army do? A lot of the time they recruit native residents um, under some interesting kind of arrangements about boundaries of where these individuals will serve. So talk us through British, in inverted commas, forces, mm -hmm. first of all, during this period. Okay, so the, the British forces consist of the British Army in India and the armies of the three presidencies of the East, East India Company. The presidency armies are, except for a handful of European regiments and specialists, um, made up of sepoy regiments, sepoy being the corruption of the Persian sipahi, for, uh, which means soldier. Uh, and except for senior officers, uh, these regiments are entirely made up of Indians, uh, each having a senior India, Indian officer who was the most important man in the regiment as that he bridged the gap between the men and the officers. Even today in the Gurkha regiments, which are the closest thing still existing to the old sort of company regiments, you have a colonel in charge, a British colonel, usually, and uh, a senior Gurkha officer. Uh, and the, the working relationship between these two men are vital to the effectiveness of the regiment. The Indian cavalry has a similar model, but with different names, and both broadly conformed to the British battalion and squadron system uh, in some way or another. Although there are no Royal Artillery batteries in India at this time, it should be said. Uh, there are company artillery, 
which, except for what were called the, um, the shot carriers, uh, who helped haul, move and service the guns, all of these were Europeans. Because there was, a, there was a stigma about allowing Indians to have possession of artillery within the company because they were basically afraid that if anything, if a mutiny happened, they could blow, they could blow them all to, you know, kingdom come. Uh, so don't teach the Indians how to use the cannons, please, is, is what they were saying. Although these shot carriers would actually, actually fight the guns if the Europeans ended up being all shot to pieces. So there's, it's a confusing thing. The British, uh, which uh, in Indian circles, the British regiments are called the King's Forces, so King's Regiments. And if you read in the, you read in the book, uh, you have to specify HM in, in front of uh, every time you use a British regimental number because mm -hmm. you're going to get confused between the the various native regiments and the, the British ones if you don't. You, people will be familiar with the makeup of these regiments. They're by 10 companies, etc. Lieutenant colonels, majors. There's, there's like, I think there's a, at this stage, there's mostly just one battalion regiments in the army. Um, oddly, there is not a, a great deal of light infantry work done in India for some reason. Light companies are a thing, but they don't really do much light bobbing out in India. Very rare you read of the sort of European style or North American style skirmishing in India. And I've not really figured out why, but I think it's something to do with the sort of the way that British tactical doctrine had developed in India. And we'll get to that, we'll get to that later. But, um, the, uh, what is a, but these British King's forces, although always uh, smaller in terms of the amount of battalions and squadrons, that were actually available to the East India Company. Um, they were usually relied on the most by British generals in, in command of the forces. Um, until, and usually until they actually got fighting and they realized actually this, you can rely quite, quite a lot on the sepoys as well. But usually the British uh, would would favor the king's regiments and they would take appalling casualties usually as as a result of that. Now, if we turn over to the Marathas, uh, you have a whole different ball of wax entirely. Um, the Marathas were a mix of old and new. Uh, they were a feudal levy mixed with an aristocratic elite uh, on the one side the best of which were, was reflected in the mounted arm. The Marathas has always been great horsemen. And this was, um, again, reflected in, in the various grades of cavalry they used. They had, they had all sorts of cavalry uh, designated up to ridiculous amounts of, uh, ridiculous amounts of equipment almost, and, and how much money they were sort of worth. You had at the lowest level Pindaris, which are basically Freebooters for hire, who were kind of like Cossacks, but before the Russians organized them. And uh, then you had guys who, for instance, would come with their weapons, but would be given a horse by the state to ride. And then you had guys who came with weapons and their own horses, and they got different levels of pay. And they were also, therefore, of various levels of reliability. And 
some and uh, the best of the cavalry the Marathas used were the were the ones that were usually paid by the independent uh, Maharajas. So the ones that they paid and equipped directly were always the best ones, and also the the regular cavalry. And that's that brings up the very interesting facet that on the one hand you had the old style Marathas army, and then you had a kind of a new a new army. In, in the 18th century, into this had been injected a shot of conventional European doctrine. Uh, the Marathas, like most of the, in quotes, country powers, maintained what the British and many of the, uh, the Marathas' own officers called a regular corps. This was a sepoy army, uh, which replicated the British model and uh, was officered by a collection of French, Swiss, German, Italian, British, uh, off and mixed race men. Uh, this was formed um, by uh, a, a meeting of the minds between uh, Mahadaji Shint and uh, a, a soldier of fortune uh, of, of French origin, I believe, called, or no, maybe Swiss actually, uh, called uh, uh, Benoit Dubois. And the force they, they formed in, in sort of the mid-late 18th century was to become the most professional and best equipped independent force in India. I should stress here that almost by this point, almost, almost every independent state had one of these. Um, Hyderabad had a French one until the British kicked it out. And uh, Tipu even formed one himself of, of a sepoy corps. And the force was as well the largest, the largest one, uh, formed into brigade-type units uh, called, which they called campus, uh, which is a Portuguese word, um, with attached artillery and a squadron of cavalry, and they were kind of organized along European lines. And it's a little difficult to just kind of to, to pierce as to what that really looked like because uh, if the commander of the Red Corps was a Frenchman, it would usually be reorganized to work like French French battalions. And if it was a British guy or a guy who had served in the British Army, it would suddenly switch slightly to become more British. So it's a little confusing and a very fascinating topic. And there was actually a really uh, there's actually some really interesting things to read about this this regular call, but I just mentioned artillery back there, and this is another key thing about the Marathas. They had excellent artillery. Um, it was extremely powerful, extremely large, and extremely well served. And because uh, it, the Indian states had realized fairly early on that artillery was they could make really good artillery and artillery was very powerful. So a lot of the Indian states really, really believed in um, the power of a power of artillery. They would agree completely with Napoleon that it is with guns that war is made. And that has obviously its advantages and disadvantages. It means that you can really pummel an opponent, but it also means it's going to slow you down quite a lot. And in addition to large artillery trains, you also have to deal with the fact that in India, you are followed around by a walking city about two, two times the size of your own fighting force. 
and there's almost nothing you can do about that. Even the British ended up with this system. And it's just something you had to get used to organizing. The, nobody ever got rid of it. It was just how war was done in India. Uh, and it was people, there's great accounts of people, sort of awed accounts of people watching the uh, an army get on the march in India uh, because it was really quite a sight to see. But going back to the Maratha regulars for a second, it's good to re remember uh, because they're highly denigrated because the British did defeat them. People will argue with you online and stuff like that. Oh, the British, you know, didn't do any, it. Was, it was easy to fight in India. Indians don't know how to fight. They just walked over them. Absolutely not the case. These guys were professional, hardened soldiers. And uh, we will tell you why they failed to defeat the British in this war. But at the second, they were well established. They had their own traditions of service. And in its heyday, I think it was actually more than a match for the company army. Absolutely. Um, again, thank you for that, Josh, because there are so many questions that come out of this. And I, I like what you picked up on there that, you know, this was not some kind of walkover. This was not a fait accompli. Um, if you want an indication of how well the, the local Indian forces fought, consider the fact that the British are quite happy to draft local sepoys into the East India Company army despite the fact that they are fighting against their own countrymen in some instances. So this idea that, you know, the, there somehow wasn't some very strong fighting spirit amongst the people who had been struggling with one another over various different conflicts over the course of how many years. War is not years. new in India. War is exactly. not new in India. <laughs> um, and I mean, the British start coming out with things like martial race theory, where they think that specific peoples in, I mean, admittedly, they apply this back home. So they think the Highlanders, for example, are yeah. um, particularly adept at, at fighting. But in India, they take that principle and they apply it themselves out there. And they start to think that certain individuals from certain sections of society, uh, certain castes and from certain geographical regions are particularly adept at fighting. So this idea that, you know, the the Indian people were not capable of fighting a, a campaign is is just an absurdity. Let me drill into that caste question first of all, because this is one of the things that I'm really interested in in my own kind of dabblings with India. And I must admit, I'm only in very sort of early stages of, of understanding this, but it's always struck me as something that was quite a challenge for the British out in India when they were recruiting um, the locals, because the whole point about the army is that you are of uniform rank within your own section. So if you're privates, you're all of, of equal importance and ditto all the way up all the other ranks. So when, you're, when you've got two people of the same cast, uh, sorry, of different castes in the same rank, what kind of social challenges does that pose and how does the EIC try to defray that? The structure of how caste works in the EIC forces rather varies depending on the presidency mm. you're in. It is not as regulated and 
considered and is not as considered as important as it as it becomes later at this period you're still in this kind of um fluctuation period where things are moving out from we are we are in india part of india working within india to we run india kind of thing um and so caste in terms of people of the same rank with different castes is a problem that has to be worked with uh within the within the boundaries that the within the east india company system but it is generally done in the case that uh well first of all it's, it's most common in bengal where there are a lot of high caste sepoys and in in the madras uh and bombay presidencies it's not as much of a problem and indeed nobody really cares a great deal about it uh, there but in bengal it's got around essentially by the selective promotion i believe where you just are very careful to keep particular offices within the units they come into um which obviously already they have felt comfortable with enlisting in because uh, if you take caste very seriously as some high caste Hindus did then you won't join a regiment that has a significantly that that would damage that because it is it is it is a deeply problematic thing the caste system uh, to your own spiritual well-being and you, you, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of very very strict laws that, that you have to follow if you want to follow it so but at this period i would say it isn't it isn't as marked uh as it as as it becomes certainly i'm conscious that you know we spent a lot of time talking about the the build-up and the preparation so why don't we jump into some of the action and particularly the the big names that folks will be familiar with top of the list there of course has to be asai um and that remarkable move by wellington to try and turn his enemy's flank sort of successfully. I mean, admittedly, the, the Marathas do redeploy, but you know, the, the, they covered a Ford. Wellington just picks out his own Ford. It's now, uh, is it still named after him? Is it still Wellesley Ford? I mean, actually, I don't, I don't know. That, that's actually the first time I've heard that it is called, it is named after him, actually. I, perhaps I've got that wrong, but uh, I seem to remember reading that somewhere. Folks will no doubt shout at me if they. It may well have. Right. It may. It would make sense if it was. He was in India, quite a well-known name. Uh, there are actually even. Um, there was a there was a trinket trade, um, that went on, after he left India, of Duke of Wellington after uh, like sculptures and things, uh, of of Wellesley Saab. Uh, and stuff like that so it's possible i just uh, i just hadn't heard of it before um but the, the point is that he then uses mm. that ford as an alternative route to cross the river and then turn the enemy's flank and they haven't covered that um, for whatever reason um so so give folks a quick summary of the battle and how it plays out okay well assay is obviously the big one that's the one if you know about the maratha war Second Maratha War. It's probably because you've heard of Assai and the Duke of Wellington. Most of the accounts of it come from his biographies. Assai, though, was a rude shock 
to General Wellesley, and it was a supreme test of his ability to improvise an ever-changing situation. Uh, after chasing the Marathas across rivers and plains and doubling back and rushing forward, the British were finally getting close to, to actually getting a general action. Uh, they were just days away actually from the enemy. Uh, unfortunately, to, to march faster and increase chances of catching the enemy, Wellesley kept his forces split. With one column under Colonel Stevenson uh, separated from him by about a day's march uh, and a strata of upland. So the plan obviously by extension of that is that we march separated and fight concentrated. So uh, one of us will catch him and the other one will come and help. Unfortunately, at the end of the marching day, about 12 p.m., uh, he heard that the enemy were actually very close and preparing to break camp. Wellesley was absolutely fed up by this point of chasing the marauders around the country, and he had been itching for a fight. His, the, letter, the bits and the dispatches are at this point all about I'm, I'm going to fight the Marathas, I'm going to catch them, I'm going to do, you know, he absolutely wants a battle and he's afraid he's going to lose them again. So at once he throws caution to the wind and decides to attack alone. Finding, but then he finds the enemy in, in a massive strength confined within what in India was called a Doab, which is a piece of land enclosed on three sides by the confluence of two rivers. He forded into the river, as you said, when no one thought he could do so. He was very proud of this in later life and he thought it was an extreme example of just common sense, basically, the way he found it. Um, because he noticed there was a, he noticed there was a town on the other side of the river and he said, well, no moron is gonna build a town there without having a way to get across the blinking river. So go find the ford. And so they found the ford and then they crossed the ford. The Marathas had uh, at, up until that point defended the line of this river facing him. Uh, for some reason, like you say, it is a little puzzling why they did not notice what he noticed, but they didn't, I guess. They, they guarded the main fords that they thought the British would, would get across. The other option, of course, is that they darn well knew they, were, they had time to redeploy. And that's exactly what they did. And although, Welle, although Wellesley never showed his shock, he was undoubtedly surprised by the fact that by the time he had turned this flank, because his idea was, I will turn the flank, and then they'll have no choice but to either run away or fight and get defeated in detail because he didn't think they could turn to face him fast enough. He was very surprised, therefore, to find out by the time he had deployed, they had moved over 100 guns and their entire regular infantry line to face him. Now he didn't face a flank, he faced an entire army with no flank to turn, and now he was actually trapped in a, like a spider in a cup uh, with a massive army facing him. And now cannonballs were coming at him in an immense, in immense weight of shot. So much so that they killed all of his bullocks that were dragging his guns, so the guns could not advance. So he had to advance without artillery support after, <laughs> basically. And it was just the most appalling mess. 
It was the most terrifying thing most of them had ever gone through. The Maratha line, although it was constricted by the, by the rivers, way outflanked their own. And if they had had a kind of a, a very energetic commander, who knows what could happen, to be honest. But British military doctrine always said in India, attack, even if you're out, uh, uh, even if you're outnumbered. And of course, Wellesley didn't have a blinking choice here. He had to attack. So he did. The infantry line goes forward into the teeth of the guns. Cannonballs flying everywhere, people being knocked down at every step, so said one, uh, so, 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 uh, so said one account. Wellesley riding up and down everywhere, making sure everybody's continuing to move forward. The weighted fire is so heavy that some sepoys are seen to visibly shrink from it and try and take advantage of tiny little clefts in the ground, turning their knapsacks to the weighted fire. And the entire line actually shrinks to the left because the fire is so heavy, they, they start to crowd in on each other for sort of security. And yet, somehow, this indomitable line of, of red coats, uh, and I just, I'm including sepoys in this because they wore the red too, get to the gun line, fire volleys into it, and yet the Marathas don't run. They have to go in with the bayonets, because as one account said, they couldn't shift them with volley fire. And then they drove them away rather than they ran away. And they finally got through the guns. While this is happening, cavalry attack Wellington, uh, Wellesley's right flank, overrun a uh, battalion of pickets, and uh, I believe it is, um, there's so many 70s in the Highland regiments, but I believe it is the 74th, overrun them. Intervention by the British and Indian cavalry saves the day. They drive the Marathas now in a rather bad mess back against the other river, drive them across that British cavalry, cut them to pieces. Then he has to lead a portion of the army back to the gun line to retake it from a bunch of guys who had pretended to be dead and roving cavalry and stuff like that. The British cavalry charge again at the fleeing enemy and get repulsed by a campu who shoots them down as they come at them and Colonel Maxwell, commander of the cavalry, is killed. Wellesley loses a third of his army. It is in no fit state to pursue. He has to wait until Stevenson catches up and tends to the wounded and he sends Stevenson after them. This is a victory because obviously he wins the field because he's vastly outnumbered and because, and for that fact, it is, is not gone unnoticed by the Marathas that we just got pretty heavily defeated by a tiny little bug of an army that was able to squash. So that's not good. <laughs> I mean, that puts it mildly, but yes, it is. It's a bloodbath, really. Yeah. It's, it's an absolute bloodbath. It's one of those victories where everything I think hangs on discipline and cohesion of a force to advance under that weight of fire you uh, there are if you don't have that level of trust and that level of morale and that that tight control you can't do it um and yeah like like we said earlier you know this idea that the indian forces could not fight is just ludicrous a third of the army gone um I, th I think it's certainly one of the Highland 
regiments. I think it's the 74. Um, it, am I right in thinking they stray too far north? And so they kind of end up being sandwiched between uh, Maratha infantry on one side and then the fortifications of Asai sort of on the other with nowhere to go. And then, as you say, get hammered by cavalry. Mm. Yeah, that's broadly, that's broadly what happens. Asai sits on the, um, I think it's the, the, the River Joir side of the Asai Doab. And it's like all towns in what is called the Deccan, which is where the campaign takes place. It's fortified with a mud wall, which the locals would have built around it to protect from Pindaris and, and robbers and things like that. And it was turned into a little fortress. It's at the very end of the Maratha infantry line and the gun line. And in his orders to advance, he was very worried about being outflanked, because like I said, the Maratha line was immense. And in order to do this, the British infantry British and Presidency Infantry were originally in two lines. And he ordered the second line to come up onto the right hand of the, of the first line to extend it. In order to do that, he, uh, a tricky thing happens in the order of battle because obviously you have the battalion of pickets that don't have a precedence in the line. They sit because they are an amalgamation of the pickets of the day drawn together as a sort of an advanced guard, they have to sit on the extreme side of the of the force, I believe, or or, or, or it's, yeah, I can't remember exactly the precedence they have, but the, the, the fact they need to switch places with one of the senior king's regiments in order to fit into the line means that a gap appears in in the line as it goes forward. And as the pickets move out of the way to, to let the 74th come into the line, they end up moving obliquely away from the main line that's going straight towards the master guns. And obviously, as I said before, remember the main line veers slightly to try and avoid the weight of fire. So a bigger gap appears. Now, for some reason, Lieutenant Colonel Oreck, who is in charge of the pickets, doesn't stop his pickets um, going straight towards SI, or at least the junction between SI and the gun line. And they come under increasingly heavy weight of fire. The rest of the line doesn't see this weight of fire because there's there's just so many guns that can now just focus on this insane batch of British people just sort of walking to their destruction. Um, the pickets basically get shot to pieces and the 74th walks through them and in turn starts to get so ravaged by shot they begin to stagger and fall back because the line's almost dissolving under the under the weight of lead. And at this point uh, a Marat, uh, a sort of a hawk-eyed Maratha officer of the cavalry notices that these guys are just ripe to be run down and he leads forward a cavalry charge. It could be one of the Peshwa's, it could, sorry, it could be one of the, the ministers of state whose name I have forgotten who actually gets killed in the battle. But this cavalry charge then hits the, the 74th 
they try and form a rallying square. They're all alone. Uh, a lot of witnesses said they just got overrun. And if it hadn't been for the British cavalry, in fact, witnesses said they got overrun. Witnesses within the, within the 74th say that they were left out there for a little while because they, they talk about instances where they could hear a British voice from the Maratha cavalry. So you're obviously still having mercenaries out there saying, telling, telling, telling people to you know, kill anybody you find and stuff like that. And talking about a particularly adept Maratha cavalryman who was really, really skillful with his lance, picking off guys um, just uh, and riding away. And then, of course, the 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 uh, the nineteenth. I think it's the nineteenth light dragoons and the seventh native cavalry come in and save the day. But it was yeah, it is pretty much they end up in a uh, just complete in a complete crossfire and and take tremendous casualties. Every one of the seventy fourth officers, I think, gets shot. I mean, folks will know that we, we have a lot of discussions with Marcus Cribb, um, who cites Wellington saying that he considered a sigh to be his greatest victory. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? I mean, okay, Wellington, he's the guy on the ground, he's the commander, he's the person best placed to know. But from a, as an external observer, there's a lot that kind of goes wrong in this. This isn't the sort of, this isn't, I mean, okay, Wellington much earlier in his career, but this is not a, a Salamanca, it's not a Victoria, it's not, it's not even a kind of Waterloo style strategy in terms of being really carefully thought through in terms of how is this going to play out. Do you, would you agree that this is one of Wellington's great moments or is this just kind of one of those moments where his inexperience actually shows a fair bit? I, th I think there's a bit of both at play he underestimated the Maratha's ability to, to fight him effectively, because he had a great he had a he had a regular officer's trust in regular troops against what he deemed uh, lesser grade troops. He didn't listen to a particular officer whose name I think his name was Colonel Collins, uh, who told him directly that. You don't actually have to worry about the Maratha cavalry. Worry about their infantry and their guns. Those will shock you. But he and the staff didn't listen to him very much, so he didn't really rate the Marathas very much. So he's definitely not appreciating his enemy in the way he appreciated Napoleon um, and the French, which he was very well prepared for when he went to Spain and Portugal. But at the same time, what you have is a glimpse into that kind of Salamanca intuition. His first plan goes wrong, and then he makes another call, which is the right call. You have to attack. And everything he does is essentially, like I say at the beginning, him improvising on a failed plan, because once he gets over the river, obviously he loses his guns. And then he has to think, think again. And then he comes up against the Maratha line. They're not running away. Um, we'll have to bayonet, use the bayonet to get through them. Um, he, makes he makes good provisions for the cavalry to cover his exposed flank. And he manages to control 
the advance of his troops to the extent that they don't get out of hand so the Marathas don't have an opportunity to counterattack effectively. And so when I think he says in later life that Asai was the greatest thing he ever did, you have to, I think you have to pay attention to what he's actually saying. He's asked, he's asked what is the greatest thing you ever did by way of fighting or something like that. So there's that one where he just replies Asai in a kind of a haunted voice because he, he was deeply affected by the carnage. Um, and there is a version somewhere, I believe, where he it's specified that he means in terms of numbers that is the best thing he ever did by way of fighting. So he's talking about the fact that he has less than 10,000 men and he goes up against somewhere in the region of, I'm not going to say it's over 40,000 men, but it's, it's certainly no, it's certainly 40,000 is the upper limit of what he was up against at SI. And even if it's 20,000, that is not a, a, of good quality troops as well. These, this isn't just a rabble, as we've said. So I think that's what he means by that. And as you know, Wellington changed his opinion as to his greatest battle several times during his life. Uh, his top three was Salamanca, Victoria, and Waterloo. No, uh, and, the, and the top four was the, the Pyrenees campaign as well, uh, which he sort of, sort of lumped into one of Sorora and stuff like that. So, um, but Asai definitely rated very highly for him as a battle. Whether it reflects his finest sort of act as a general, I don't know because obviously he called it wrong and he got himself into a bit of a, a bit of a situation which could have gone dramatically wrong and it shows his qualities as a leader and certainly his tactical flair but I'm um, it's probably it, it is and it is not his finest hour he he was very uh, yes he was very very was very, very concerned about it actually after the battle. His letters after the battle are all about, I have lost too many men because I went off on my own without waiting for Stevenson and people are gonna crucify me for this. He was very, very, very concerned about making sure people understood he had no choice. Can I just ask about Stevenson? Because I have a vague recollection somewhere that Stevenson went um ever so slightly insane is that right and if so what kind of implications did that have for the campaign stevenson from what i know of him uh was quite old at the time and all that wellesley ever says about him was that he was a very he was a very dependable guy he trusted him quite a lot uh to, and that he he was ill but I don't know what he was ill with. I know at the Battle of Algam after Asai, when they were moving on Gabalgur, he was so ill, he apparently had to sit in an elephant to, um, to command his troops, um, which seems a little dramatic since presumably they had horses and, and litties and things, but he'd been in India for a while, so I guess he went with an elephant. Um, and at, at the siege of Gabalgur, he was... Um, he was incapacitated again, which required Wellesley to ride up to 50 miles a day to check on the various positions around the fortress. 
Um, so that, I guess, sort of sums up the effect of the other commander being rather incapacitated by something or other, just more workload on Wellesley. Because he, luckily it was Wellesley, so he took upon himself everything. So, oh, Colonel Stevenson's ill. Well, I'll just leave it to his successor. No, no, I'll go and do I'll it all do myself. It. <laughs> that's, that's very Wellesley-esque or Wellingtonian, isn't it? The, you know, I'm the only one who can possibly uh, do these things if, if my number two is incapacitated. Seeing as we're talking about sieges, let's, let's discuss those a little more. I mean, there's the Escalade at Ahmed Naga, uh, and the more conventional siege operation at the Fortress of Gaul-Gur. Operationally, how well run, and again, this is, I'm on a Wellington bashing uh, trend today, but how well run are they? Because as we know, sieges are not Wellington's strong point. And to some extent, the argument could be made that actually that's because of his experiences in India. So for example, Burgos, a lot of people turn around and say, ah, oh, but what he's expecting at Burgos is an Indian hilltop fortress like he dealt with during these kinds of campaigns. And Burgos is a much tougher nut to, to crack than he anticipated. So, I mean, are these well-conducted sieges? Does he make the right calls? And would you necessarily agree with the idea that the what, what happens during this campaign informs his later dealings with fortresses? Yes, I think it does inform his later uh, his later experience with fortresses, definitely. So Ahmed Bauke is the first fortress that he attacks at the opening of the war um, with uh, the Marathas in the Deccan. He goes up against it having expected to to attack it, and in fact it was it was actually necessary to attack it very quickly or uh, because it was running out of supplies. Um, he, he did so, and this is, this, uh, yeah, and this is another instance of him kind of making a, a, a tactical decision based on insufficient intelligence. Um, uh, Ahmed Naga is, has a peta wall. And the Peta wall is is just is, is just the wall that runs around the in quotes Peta, which is the is the town, the civilian town that sits below the fortress. The idea is to get through that. And naturally enough, from a European point of view, you would therefore attack the curtain walls between the towers. Unfortunately, um, a lot of Indian fortresses don't see the real need to put a put a walkway on a curtain wall that surrounds a, a town. And so the first attack was repulsed because when they see when the scaling ladders, you know, when they got up the scaling ladders, there was nothing to stand on except like a half a foot little shelf. Uh, and that was a bit of a that was a bit of a mess. But luckily some some rather spirited officers, I believe, uh, Lieutenant or Captain Colin Campbell. I'm not of Crimea fame. I think this is a different Colin Campbell. Practically everybody is called Colin Campbell with the name Campbell. But um, the, he then leads this uh, party of the 78th up a tower and takes that. And then the gates, I believe, are blown um, 
uh, roughly the same instant as the as the guys who have managed to to wheedle their way inside uh, get round to the gatehouse. So that was Ahmed Nage, and therefore again it was he didn't really have any information. He could have asked his Maratha allies about where to attack first, but apparently he didn't. Nevertheless, his Maratha allies, remember the Peshwas on his side technically, um, was, uh, they were very impressed by the fact that he just looked at it and attacked it and did take it in a day. Um, but obviously it could have gone smoother. Um, with Gawilgur, Gawilgur is actually a, um, a much smoother operation and a very impressive actually it's it is it is it's a very impressive looking place it is literally sitting on top of a of a of a sheer cliff and it's got two sections to it connected by a bridge and the only way to get to the to the section that's accessible is to is to go through the mountainous terrain and get up onto a plateau that it slightly overlooks it and this is very impractical for guns, but nevertheless, Stevenson's column does this, establishes batteries in front of that gate, digs some trenches for cover. Meanwhile, Wellesley conducts siege operations below the fortress, uh, sort of keep people occupied. And obviously he has to ride, he has to like do mo most of the things himself because Stevenson's ill for most of the attack. And then they assault it successfully and, uh, and take it. Uh, despite the fact there is no breach in the second uh, in the second uh, portion of the of the fortress that they have to <laughs> have to do some gymnastics to try and get across the bridge and scale the cliff to get over the walls on that one as well. So Gawilgo is actually a, a quite a smooth operation, comparatively speaking. But having said that, there's no doubt in my mind, and based on the fact that. He later actually identifies that Burgos was, um, he, he quote, it's a quote, he goes that um, it, it was not unlike many hill forts in India and I'd got into a great many of those, but it was defended by a very clever fellow. Um, after Salamanca, um, India mode kicks in with Wellington. And up until this point, he has been nothing in India up until the Second Maratha War. If you had looked at his record, it would be attack, 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 logistics, 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 logistics. No defense whatsoever in his record. He chases people down, he leads cavalry charges, he fights insurgents. This is not the Wellesley, the, this is not the Wellington people know from the peninsula. Um, there's, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of Bonaparte's dash in him at this point, actually. And so when he sees people running, and he had the French running after Salamanca, he's he, India mode kicks in. I'll chase them, and all the cities will surrender as I get to them, or I'll take them really quickly because the heart has gone out of them. So I think that's definitely something that stayed with him. Uh, and he had to sort of control it because he was fighting the French. Uh, and also, uh, it has to be said that the garrison of Garugur had had received directly. Um, the, the garrison of Garugur was made up by people who had escaped the Battle of Algon, uh, and and so they weren't in a great state themselves. So, sure. I mean, one of the things that we've touched already on issues of, of race and racial attitudes during this period. Um, 
And what's quite striking actually is that, yes, there are some inclinations to underestimate the ability of the Maratha forces, but in terms of racialized attitudes, not much earlier than this point, you've got people who, senior figures out in India who have married local ladies and are quite content to be portrayed with their, um, with their, their wives of a, a different, I'm going to use inverted commas here, of a different race. Um, I dislike the term hugely, but folks can get the thrust of what I'm, I'm getting at here. So quite proud of the fact that they have, have married somebody of a different ethnicity. So we've talked about the fighting. What about the treatment of prisoners of war? Because obviously any fighting, you have prisoners on both sides. And, and this picture is complicated by the fact that for Maratha troops, they're fighting yes, British regular forces, but they're also fighting sepoys. So do we have any evidence of stigma? Is there evidence of Indian sepoys being treated differently from their white colleagues if they became prisoners, or do we just not have any evidence of that at all? Uh, the, I think there is, yes, some evidence of, of the treatment of prisoners. The, the most famous treatment of prisoners in an Indian context will be the treatment of the prisoners in Mysore um, after the, um, would be the second or third Mysore wars, but I'm a little sketchy on it. Anyway, um, General Baird obviously being locked in a dungeon with an untreated wound alongside private soldiers who uh, are basically just left to die in a, in a semi-flooding um, hellhole, it would appear. Um, so, just because you were a European doesn't mean you're necessarily treated better. Um, depended, it kind of depended on what the goal of the, um, the opposing forces were. You know, whether they wanted to, um, whether they wanted to be kind to the prisoners in order to try and get a better deal or whether they were fighting to the death, in which case they would just do terrible things to you. And obviously he's an officer uh, at that time as well. So that's not a good sign for private European soldiers. Um, as for the way that sepoys would be treated, again, I think it depends sort of on the war aims of the guy who catches them. I think the best example that I can think of would be to go to our friend uh, Yashwan Trauer, uh, Holker, who, uh, you know, it's just epic guy. You know, he's this, he's this merciless, one-eyed, hard-drinking, hard-riding, womanizing, legend uh who happens to unfortunately for the british have a um a rather uh, a, a, a quite a talent for for mounted warfare and he um destroyed a detachment of 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 sepoy uh of presidency soldiers under colonel monson i think it was in 1804 uh completely wiped it out uh, well, wiped it out. He, he destroyed it as an effective force. Um, and part of the thing, one of the things that he did while he had it on the run was continually send people out to the sepoys to try and get them to desert. And he would use uh, arguments about 
the um, why are you fighting for these foreigners? Uh, come and fight with us. We're your brothers, kind of thing. You know, we'll and and he would promise them incentives. He would give them a bounty, give them a woman. You know, you would you try to give incentives to them to desert, and so if you deserted and if you had the offer and you deserted and it was quite common to bribe people in Indian warfare a lot of battles uh, throughout India had been turned by one side or another managing to pay off somebody not to turn up or to turn coat in the middle of a battle and stuff like that so this is completely within the realm of usual business he if you deserted to him you'd probably get a, a decent um, a decent spot in the army uh, even though you had been fighting him if you were captured, on the other hand, that's, that's a little trickier. It's known that in this precise instance, after Monson's defeat, um, that a lot of sepoys did desert, but some of them were captured and some of the, even the people who did desert to Holkar were very badly treated and uh, mutilated, actually. And the sight of these poor wretches coming back to the British side actually stopped the desertion uh, of the sepoys, which had been very worrying, which had been very worrying to the to the British authorities around Delhi at the time. And so, again, it sort of depends. I don't think there's one rule for how they were treated. It depended whether you needed the troops for the army, in which case you encourage desertion, you don't treat them badly, you give them lots of like money, money and things like that. Try to appeal to what is very common in the military, um, military culture of South Asia, which is um, obviously people in India have been fighting each other for a very long time. And the British were to some extent by local populations seen as the newest kid on the block. They're offering money for service. I am a soldier, I have a hereditary duty to fight. You know, my father fought, we were warriors, you know, things like that. They want to pay me to fight, I'll fight for them. And obviously if someone else is offering better uh, prospects uh, in, the, in the military economy of the time, then you go to them, it's as simple as that, whoever is doing the best. And obviously the British outperformed the, low, the, in quotes, country powers in this recruitment area to offer better incentives for their sepoys, I guess. But generally speaking, if things are going bad, you could desert and you would probably be, do all right. But on the other hand, you had to watch it because sometimes you'll be made an example of. So it's a difficult question to answer precisely, but uh, it's not necessarily the case that just because the British are foreigners, um, their troops would be considered traitors to India because there is no concept of India as India. You know, people know it as a geographic expression, um, but uh, most of the people who fought the British had nothing in common with the people fighting alongside the British. The Marathas hated Hyderabad. The Marathas hated Mysore, um, Muslim and Hindu powers. So religion, and, religion and, and things like that were more common problems to deal with, I think. I mean, you talked about desertion. 
um, which as far as I'm concerned is an open invitation to start discussing discipline. Um, so listeners can groan away at my self-indulgence of shoehorning you know, discussions of discipline into every single, well, almost every single interview, but given an opportunity, I will take it. Um, let's talk about the British um, and a pretty patchy record uh, when it comes to sieges generally, but most famously um, in the context of India specifically at Seringapatam after its capture in 1799. I know not part of the Maratha and Jack campaigns, but nonetheless part of this push to expand British control into the subcontinent. I mean, people are bound to ask, to what extent is Seringapatam driven by race? Um, personally, I, I look at what happens at Seringapatam and then I look at what happens at Diodad Rodrigo and Burgos, uh, sorry, not at Burgos, uh, at Badajoz and at San Sebastian. And you can see the direct line. They're, they're doing exactly the same thing, not because of race, it's because that's what British soldiers do when they've taken a town by storm and have the ability to plunder. So that's, that's just my perspective. So my, I guess my first question is, what's your perspective? And then as a follow on, what's the situation like after taking of Ahmed Nagar and Golgar? Yeah, I agree with you on, on, on the first call. The treatment of, by a British soldier, after he's got into a, a city after a storm, is the treatment he 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 meets out to a Indian, we'll say Hindu or Muslim, is not all that different to what he meets out to a Portuguese or Spanish Catholic. I don't know what it would be like precisely. If, if, if this happened in a Protestant country, i.e. Well, I mean, the, the point of comparison there, I guess, is the American War of Independence slash American Revolution, whichever folks prefer to yes. describe it as, um, in which actually there's a lot of evidence coming out um, in, increasingly that the British were really quite appalling. Um, there seems oddly to be more evidence of sexual assault um, during the American War of Independence than there is for the Peninsula War. And that's not to say that sexual assault did not happen during the Peninsula War or indeed necessarily during the, the India campaigns. It's simply an indication that there's mm -hmm. been the ability to dig that up. So, I mean... Yes, I, remember, I remember some things that were, were said about um, 1776 when they when they invaded again and landed on Long Island that the, basically no woman was safe around the camp basically mm. um, so yes I think I think if we I think yeah, that's that's a legitimate point of comparison as well then uh, yeah this is just what happens this is just the this is just how this is just the army this is just what you've got in the army this is just um, It depends as well on the general and how strict he is about trying to control the in quotes worst excesses of the troops you might call it um so but uh, yeah I, I agree i don't think this is a particularly racial thing um nor can it be properly argued that it's a religious thing although certainly 
Catholics, Hindus, and Muslims would be seen as somewhat less important uh, in terms of how you treat them. Um, that can't actually explain anything more. Uh, no, it can't really get to the heart of the motive of, of why these things happen. This is more to do with in the in the in the in the, in the subject of sieges and storms of a kind of a bestial nature that is unleashed in the process of having to storm a breach. Uh, it seems um, that to storm a breach, you need to let that iron discipline of, of linear warfare relax so you can scramble up a, rock, a, a rubble strewn a slope and, and use your bayonet to, to stab your way into the city. Um, Officers have much less control of their troops in that situation. And that's why a general reserve is always needed to try and get into the city to make sure it surrenders properly after the stormers have basically lost control and spread out. Because as we also know, rules of war as they stand, if you storm a city, you're allowed to sack it. So. Mm, I mean, I always question that one because that's meant to go back to medieval um medieval styles of warfare and my understanding was that you could put the garrison to the sword as opposed to there being a convention that if the city yeah. stands the assault then I mean, you can physically it, sack it it's certainly one of the unwritten rules basically you are allowed to execute the entire garrison again unwritten rule a lot of people did it when they like genghis khan would would make an example of a city that resisted him and execute the garrisons and stuff like that. So it was an accepted, I feel, I feel personally, it's an accepted form of warfare that if you have to waste your troops when ostensibly you can no longer hold a town, I mean, you can theoretically, but at a massive cost. If you force me to expend the lives of my men, I will make you suffer, basically. So that is where I think it comes from. Soldiers by, I think, the 19th century, I don't know if you agree or not, seem to have the impression that they had the right to do whatever they wanted, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, and generals tended to give them at least 24 hours before trying to stop them whenever that happened. And some people were terribly egregious about it and would just let the looting continue ad infinitum. Um, but um, in the terms, I, I, don't, I, think, I think you're right about the fact that this is just more a byproduct of the British 18th, 19th century army, rather than those people are different and there we must, we must treat them as such. I think that probably was a consideration within the ranks. Uh, I doubt you could say, <laughs> I doubt you could say that the British army of the 19th century was uh, particularly enlightened in terms of race, uh, but I don't think you can say their motives for sacking a place was because they didn't like Indians or, or Spaniards. I think it's because they wanted the loot and they wanted the women. And especially in terms of Surrey Town, that was a very rich city and the loot they got out of that was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> Ahmed Nage is um, is another instance. It's a, it's a, it's it's an old city. It's quite rich. It's got a large civil town in it. So they could there was uh, a bit of there was at least 
a, a day or so or several hours where looting happened. This was all for some reason strangely blamed on the sepoys by the British officers, which is probably, I mean, I'm almost certain it's unfair um, to say that, that was all the sepoys fault. Uh, and I think two sepoys were hanged to make sure that um, to make sure that it stopped because Wellesley was in command and that was pretty much how he tried how he stopped looting was to start hanging people and um, maybe that also informed some of his attempts to stop the looting in, in Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz because again he, he resorts to building a gallows he said I'm going to start hanging people now so stop it and because uh, that's what he did in India, perhaps that's maybe that's something he picked up there. But um, with Gawilgur, that's more of a fortress in the purest sense. There's not much of a civilian population. It's built um, as a military, basically, installation. And although there is a civilian population in it, it's mostly the civilians of the garrison in it. And sadly, a lot of them chose to die rather than be captured. Now, some of this may be. Um, propaganda. Some of it may not be true, or it might be inflated. Some people say everybody died. Some people say the majority died. And there is at least two accounts that talk of um, a specific thing that would happen amongst the Rajputs um, and things like that, uh, and people of that of that persuasion uh, that they would uh, kill their own families um, rather than let them fall into the hands of the enemy. And that certainly seems to have happened at Gawilgur as well. But as to the misbehavior of the troops, um, there wasn't so much of that. Although I do remember a very interesting account by Roderick Eanes, who was a soldier in the 78th foot. And he, uh, as a private soldier, I should add, is interesting because in later life, he, he did a memoir. Now he, he implies that the storming party got out of hand and just started killing people. He doesn't directly say it, but it's the implication there that because the garrison continued to fight, they were pursued through the streets and uh, essentially not allowed to surrender. So there's some, something happened at Goelgo, but I'm not particularly sure if we can get to the bottom of what that was. It seems to be more militarily driven that one than, than after loot because there wasn't any real loot in the place. Uh, also Wellesley was in the, got into that place very quickly after they, they stormed it as if he was de definitely going to try and make sure he got the troops in hand pretty fast. So what's the legacy of the campaign, whether it be for British control of India, whether it's for the locals or, or for Wellesley himself? Well, the, the Second World Art of War doesn't end like everybody thinks it ends. It doesn't end uh, after the capture of Gawalgur and, uh, and the surrender of uh, Navatra Sindh. It, um, it ends in around, sometime in 1805, late 1805, I believe, uh, when Lake, the commander-in-chief in India, there is a governor-general and there is a commander-in-chief, General Gerard Lake, one of the old school, he's a very popular fellow, he's called Liksab Bahadur by the Sawas of the Bengal cavalry, he's much more popular than Wellesley is, but he's not as professional. And he's an old chap, 
he's 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 of the he's of the class of Abercrombie and you know these old bewigged fellows who were hard riders and good old boys and things like that. He leads the campaign through Hindustan, takes Delhi, gets control of the um, gets gets control of the Sultan. He's able to do this mostly because. <laughs> Governor General Richard Wellesley had the bright idea to bribe off all of the European officers in the regular corps of the Maratha army um, as soon as the war was declared and an awful lot of them left Maratha service, which is another reason, as I said, this is the, re this is the basic reason why I said the Maratha regulars were not able to perform very well because they lost most of their officers. And so he takes Delhi and then he defeats the rest of Sindhya's true, uh, Sin, yeah, I should say the British call him Sindhya. He's often also called Shind and I call him Shind because I'm ornery. Um, and he, he defeats the rest of the regular corps uh, in Hindustan. And then he goes off chasing Holkar around um, these very, uh, around uh, the small Rajput kingdoms, uh, which are to the west of Delhi. And uh, this is where Monson's disaster happens. A, a, a core gets wiped out when Lake thinks all is over and he's gone home. And then he has to come back and chase Holkar again. And he ends up uh, trying to take the Jat fortress of Bharatpur. Now, in terms of talking about sieges, this one is not on anyone's map because Wellington wasn't there. And it is an unmitigated disaster. The British have never failed to take a place in India, almost on the first try. He tried four times to storm Bharatpur, and each time he was repulsed. The Jats put up the most ridiculous defense you've ever seen against the, the greatest, in quotes, fortress breakers India had seen since the Mughals. And they showed him the door. Everybody was absolutely stunned by this. You even, it got so bad that King's troops, Blake's favorite troops, because he relied totally on Europeans and got them all shot to pieces to win his battles. They refused to advance out of their trenches because they said, we're not going to go and get murdered, trying to attack that thing again. And so the officer in charge turned to the reserve regiment of sepoys. And it's one of the great moments of the Indian army that these guys without, without complaint, just go up against the walls and get basically shot down because the Europeans wouldn't do it. And for a brief moment, uh, one of the colors of the native infantry regiments flies from the parapet. Uh, proving that they managed to get up there. But it's appalling, the whole thing. And Lake can't take it. Instead, he, he has to go and chase Holkar up into Punjab to desperately try and make sure he doesn't make peace with Ranjit Singh of the Sikhs. And there he manages to get him to, to make a peace treaty. And then he makes a peace treaty, and he makes a peace treaty with the Raja of Bharatpur as well, where he says, uh, where it's 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 obviously a climb down. Basically, he accepts a very large bribe, basically, <laughs> for war indemnities, and uh, a slap on the wrist for fighting the British, and then just awkwardly goes home and never speaks of it again. But um, so this is the sour taste of the Second Maratha War. 
The Marathi power is broken, no doubt about it. As a political power, they have lost their central center of power. They're no longer able to really resist the British, although there is a third war uh, uh, after the Napoleonic Wars end. It, this is, uh, it's not a very satisfactory ending to the war, but it achieves essentially what Richard Wellesley wanted and extends British power up to the line of the Himalayas and the Punjab and as far south as the, uh, well, as the tip of India, pretty much. Um, but of course, not everybody in Whitehall is happy about what he's been up to. He's been fighting ridiculously expensive wars for vague ideas about a subsidiary plan that nobody really likes except him. Not even, not even Arthur Wellesley likes it. He's really ticked off with Richard because he treats Shindia so um, shabbily after he makes peace because Arthur had been very generous in his terms with him and Richard is just all hardline. And he's saying, and, and, and Arthur goes, you know, if, if we can't get these people to trust us, what's even the point? So, I mean, he'd been on record as being against the idea of, in, of fighting the Marathas like this from the beginning. He actually just wanted to restore the Peshwa install a garrison in Pune and um, go home basically and let Bajirao figure it out himself. So that is in, this brings British power in India to it's almost its height, like you're saying at the beginning actually, we're actually closer to the end than we are to the beginning now actually. Um, in the 1840s they fight the last great war of conquest against the Sikhs um, and conquer the last major part of India that they don't already own. But the Marathas were up until that point the last great power standing in their way. And so the result of the Second Maratha War is incredibly important for the history of India. For Wellesley himself, Richard Wellesley for a start gets um, recalled for his dodgy dealings um, because they, nobody trusts him to be in India alone anymore. And Arthur Wellesley comes back pretty rich um, nice suntan. Uh, uh, feeling kind of ill though, he's pretty much sure he's going to die if he stays in India much longer because he's been getting increasingly more um, unhealthy in, in terms of uh, well, in, in terms of his well-being. He's been sick quite a lot and um, he comes back as a successful general but an India general and nobody really credits India generals as being being any good, and that's unfortunately a legacy that comes down to today, that nobody thinks fighting in India proves you're much good at soldiering. Although anybody who had fought in India would have said that except for a hard winter's campaign, nothing, uh, there was nothing like fighting in India for hardships. Um, so I think that that sort of wraps that sort of, I think that answers the question. Wesley's Arthur Wellesley is now setting up for coming onto the stage, proving himself in the European theatre. And India, well, bureaucrats, bureaucrats and lawmakers and administrators now have to figure out how to administrate this massive uh, subcontinent that Richard Wellesley has just handed to them with all its expensive subsidiary treaties that they have to now um, find a way to make work. Josh, as always, it's been an absolute delight. Um, it's always a pleasure to just sit here and just let your knowledge 
wash over me. Um, it's incredible how you managed to retain all this inside your head, frankly. Uh, so your book, Bullocks, Grain and Good Madeira, is coming out from Hellion. Folks can pre-order, I believe, at hellion.co.uk. Please do, folks. I'm sure you'll have enjoyed this as much as I have. Go away, click that link, order this book, um, because it's, it's going to be a, an entertaining read for you, I, I suspect. Josh, thank you a huge, mm. huge amount. Uh, very grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. I think uh, I can actually leave you with a very nice little tidbit, actually. Go um, for it. Which is this. After, not long after he left India, Wellesley said that he had tested the sepoys on many occasions and they had never let him down. And that when, he, when Napoleon came to St. Helena, he met the governor there, the one that was before Sir Hudson Lowe. And he said, and he got into a conversation with Napoleon about India. And Napoleon, not knowing anything about India, asked him, because the governor had fought it in Mysore, are the Indians all cowards because they allow you to run the country, basically? And he said that it was certainly not the case, that, they, that although he, he decided that Europeans were naturally stronger soldiers, the uh, sepoys never lacked in courage. And then trying to trick him, Boney said, ah, but would you rate them as high as British soldiers? And the governor replied, the finest of them, yes. It's a good little anecdote. And we managed to squeeze some Boney bashing in there as well. Josh, always a pleasure. Thanks very much again. Thank you. That was Josh Proven, the author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, joining me to talk about the Maratha and Jat campaigns of the early 1800s, which forms the focus of his book. As you heard, both of Josh's titles are available on the Napoleonicist bookstore. Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira is actually on pre-order, as it comes out in the middle of next month. Click the link in the description, and in the process of buying there, you'll be supporting not only Josh, but also the Napoleonicist. Alternatively, you can order direct at hellion.co.uk. A big thank you, as ever, to my Napoleonicist patrons. Full details on how you can support and influence the content of this podcast are also available in the link in the description. Particular shout-outs to my Commander patron, Ger Brown, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alex Churchill, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, James Bevan, Jamie Kingston, Jim Deary, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Rob Griffith, and Rory Muir. Remember that you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory and in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. I'll be back in a fortnight, but until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.